Hello, and welcome to Game Brain, a podcast about board games and about our gaming group. I am Trey Alsop. I am your host for today's episode. This is round 11, turn six, and today we are going to talk about the 2006, I mean the 2015 game, <laughs> Through the Ages, a new story of civilization by Vlada Shabazl. And we're going to talk about the joys of competitive play. Today, I am joined by our group's rules lawyer, the master of musicology, Alfred Darlington. Thank you so much, Trey. It's really nice to be back, and especially on such an auspicious uh, reoccurring game in our lives. It's uh, nice to have the online implementation enough to talk it out, and such a storied game at that, right? We, yes, we've been playing this game through the ages of our of our our gaming group. Uh, tell me how uh, how you're doing. You were telling me uh, you've got a big move coming up. Is that right? Abs yeah, absolutely. And that's something I did want to to reach out to the kind of game brain at large. Um, I am in the process of moving to Providence, Rhode Island. My partner and I um, we we have a house in I guess. Oh gosh, Federal Hill. Something. Uh, oof. I'm I'm going to be really. A, I'm going to not know much about Providence. <laughs> Do you know where you're moving. Yeah. No. Kind of. Sort of. Um, they all have neighborhoods. There's actually a Silver Lake there, which was very confusing, just south of where I'm living. And uh, I was like, this is not LA anymore. And I wanted to click my Ruby slippers together, but LA is not in my forecast. Uh, I will be commuting to Boston, so I will still be often in uh, the kind of that area area of New England, but Providence is a new thing. And I'm looking for FLGSs. I'm looking for game groups. I want to keep, especially as we are starting to thaw, starting to hatch. It's not just spring, but maybe just enough people are getting shots that in-game, in-gaming, <laughs> in-person gaming, oh goodness, will even be something we can speak of. So no, yeah, I the, think we're, yeah. we're counting down here uh, in LA where uh, everybody's kind of tracking each other's vaccination schedule and doing the math and trying to figure out when we can get together. But the, like the good news is that, uh, you know, uh, the end does, does appear to be in sight. So you're gonna be able to what, get a, get your studio back together, right? This is part few, of what's yeah, going on. Yeah. A few resources will come back to bear. It's, it's not just a studio, but it's also a, a space for my partner to have, but also Keely, like I have a young, young one that's going to be growing in leaps and bounds already seemingly has. And that requires as all family expansion, um, you need to add the room, right. To make space for the babe, uh, at least according to Agricola rules, I believe, right? So um, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing my you're, best. You're, right, you're expanding the house, you're expanding the domicile. Mm -hmm. Did it a little in weird order. Family growth action. So yeah, I took the family growth action, but as a moment before the the actual uh, the den got added or whatever it is in Caverna or Agricola, and so um, yeah, doing the thing and also uh, yeah, you you have to send off the signal flare. I'm not in the position yet. To be doing so, but when the time comes that the game brain re reforms like Voltron, I want to at least I want to at least get that message, and so I you know maybe you can jump on a plane for a weekend and and do some mad amount of gaming with y'all. But that that's more of wishful thinking. I know we'll get there eventually. We'll have the return of the the ten rings of man and the, the <laughs> six rings of elves or whatever the thing is. We'll do it. Well, yeah, and I imagine that like uh, a lot of different gaming groups are kind of going through a, a, a similar thing, and it's probably, you know, the details of every group situation uh, matters. But I think like it's nice to be, I don't know, like transitioning away from an online existence. Although, like, how much of this is still going to like stick with us? 
going forward, like with teaching for you and also like how, how we game. But I like I could sense with uh, Elder was talking about this on his episode where it's just kind of like I'm a little just done with the online gaming. I'm so ready to, to see friends. And like maybe that's made it just seem like more important that like that aspect of of gaming is the you know the the, the literal getting together with friends thing I, I don't know what i'm going to do though when i can when i can actually read people's intentions and their sense of irony <laughs> i'm just so used to this kind of like i don't know what people meant when they say good game at the end of this online match are they saying it in a mean way are they saying it in a kind way are they actually giving me uh props when i when i kind of throttle them or are they you know whispering under their breath is a curse I'm. I don't know if I'm looking forward to being able to really know. I kind of like that ambiguity. Right. Some, about sometimes just accept it as the GG and and move and move on. All right. Uh, with that in mind, let's go to this week's game night. Alfred, what have you been playing? Yeah, it has been a whole bunch of online play. Um, uh, notably, Santorini, I have a continuous match. That is, every time it ends, we start up a new one with Drew the Rat, friend of the podcast, long-term friend of Tom, and I believe yours as well. Um, we Yeah, we have a never-ending Santorini match. And Santorini is is a particularly notable game in the fact that it, it has like a million variations. You kind of don't need to tune in. It's like the basic gameplay is very straightforward, but you have all these different archetypes, these different gods that you are occupying. And they've also maybe something about the current uh, online situation with BGA, but they're like implementing all these new, maybe like one-off tournament gods. So it's really cool. You're getting all this variation that maybe wouldn't have happened on a base base game. Uh, And yeah, some weird exceptions pop up every once in a while. We're playing pretty wild. And then we're, I'm also playing Terra Mystica, um, a game that I have mixed feelings about. But with also uh, game brain, <laughs> right. game brainers, uh, Dory Bund, uh, I Need Coffee, and Pedro Caetano, two of them in Brazil. Uh, I don't know where Dory Bund is, but like, how awesome is that to have like international people from the group that are I'm able to to get hours so this with? Is the, this is the game brain group. Yeah, on this ga- BGA, this is the game. Brain. Wow, so it's really happening. Huh? It's happening, and especially the international flavor of it's rad. The game, I'm, I'm middling at best at the game, but uh, we're, we're also kind of like, we finish one, start another. These are some really excellent members of the group. A lot of good gaming has happened with them. I really appreciate it. And then finally, on, on the solo side, or I should say with Strangers, I've been getting a lot of Kingdom Builder, and then Russian Railroads is still my number one. I just uh, got my 500th match of Russian Railroads in, I guess, yesterday. Wow. Got a little award from BGA. They give you this little dripper of, you know, like uh, of reward system. Uh, Here's your reward, your Scooby yeah. snack. Yeah. Exactly. So the in-game. So are you, are you playing these games? Would you, would you say you're playing them competitively? I would say with Russian Railroads, I am definitely playing competitively as I'm involved in some tournaments. And we will talk more about that later. Um, I also am playing them somewhat badly as I try to figure out what it is to play a <laughs> tournament game and all the the kind of ways you have to change your gameplay. But yeah, as you mentioned at the top, we'll get into this more as my member segment, but I love it. it there is a real game buried within the kind of nominal game and it shines like a diamond in the sky, as Katy Perry would say. I never should say that. Can we edit that? Can we strike that from the record? No, nah, just keep it going. Either way. 
For me, uh, this week, it's only been like I haven't played that much. We played uh, a couple games of Through the Ages to kind of get back up to speed uh, for the review. And I played a few games of Terra of uh, Terraforming Mars on iOS. So I've kind of a lot of iPad gaming these days, uh, not as much BGA and tabletop simulator. But again, I think this just goes to that like exhaustion with uh trying to get people together to play is always hard and then even playing asynchronously like waiting for people so i don't know i feel like we're in uh the end stages of the pandemic and uh like the exhaustion is showing okay the first item on the news is that a kind of teaser trailer dropped for seven wonders mystery uh, you can find this on Twitter. You can find this. Well, there'll be a link in uh, in the show notes. But everyone's kind of speculating on uh, what this means and kind of doing a, a Zapruder like uh, breakdown of the teaser trailer to try to figure out what Seven Wonders mystery is. So uh, check that out. And that wasn't on April first. Let's just note that that teaser right. did not come out because that would easily be a source of ridicule potentially. Right? We're waiting for some game group to do that. <laughs> Of course. And you know, right, all we know is that it kind of says Seven Wonders Mystery and it has April 26th as a date. So uh, something on April 26th. Uh, next news item, the American Tabletop Awards um, have released their best new releases of 2021. So this is a U- United States version, essentially, of the uh, European uh, Spiel de Jar. And this has been going, I think, about like three years uh, they have four different categories. The winner of the Early Gamers Award this year is Abandon All Artichokes by Emma, Emma Larkins, who I haven't played. Have you played this game? No, no, but it's, no, I mean, it's a catchy I've heard, title. I've heard yeah. a lot of talk about it, but uh, Emma Larkins, is, I've, I've listened to her a bunch on the Ludology podcast. Excellent podcast is still running, although I think she's she's leaving that maybe with her new Artichoke success. Uh, in the casual game category, and it'll be it's interesting how this this stuff breaks down. But in the casual game category, The Crew by Thomas Singh, a game that uh, I, I really like quite a bit and look forward to playing more of. In the strategy games category, Calico by Kevin Russ, which I don't know anything about. Again, I feel like we're, I've been missing some stuff during the pandemic. Have you played Calico? No, no, I haven't had had the chance. But I did. I I saw the announcement of these awards, so I'm kind of nodding in agreement because. I also was like, that looks like a game, like <laughs> with a cat on the cover. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's got some, some things running for it, but I, I don't know where to place it. So exactly same. Yeah. So this is kind of like helping form the list of stuff to catch up on when we can actually see each other again. And finally, in the uh, complex games category, Dominations Road to Civilization by Eric Debus and Olivier Melisson. And knowing right. nothing about that game, I I was wondering about the timing of it with the kind of way that we're taking a more critical stance at 4X, the way we're looking at even space colony games. And as we will talk about, you know, today on our special uh, segment, special. Yes. yeah, um, it's it's just interesting timing for that to win the big one for us. So yeah. I, I look forward to checking it out. I mean, I've, I yeah, I, I tend to like, like Civ games don't necessarily have to be 4X games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction. And, you know, Through the Ages is certainly a Civ game. So I'm generally down to try the, those types. In other news, uh, Reiner Knizia has kind of, you know, had a number of releases recently. And the new one, uh, The Siege of Rundar, will be released in October. And this is a 
deck building tower defense game. So he's had a nice little run of like new games. Uh, I think both Babylonia and Sumatra from the same publisher. I believe Jennifer's played a lot of Babylonia and I think really likes it. I'll let her speak for herself on that. But I saw a number of Facebook posts playing that game where she seemed to get it. And My City also, I think it's a different publisher, but Knizia making, you know, is back. And I've heard great things about My City. That's another game that I'm I'm eager Mm-hmm. eager to play uh final bit of news friend of the pod Candace harris has published another kind of game preview on board game geek geek uh link in the show notes and this is on the shores of tripoli a game by kevin bertram published by fort circle games a one to two player count which i think that's interesting one or two don't see that too much uh and this is a historical game about the first barbary war between the united states and the barbary pirates from about 1801 to 1805 i'm really interested in this in theory because it's history i love historical games it has a lot of card play that looked a little bit like kind of twilight struggle stuff so it has history it's got cards it also has lots of dice well but isn't that the war game special right they kind of want to inject some sort of chaos so there's repeat play that it isn't just who has the card at a given time? They don't want it to just be a Twilight Struggle. Even though Twilight Struggle still has dice in it too. Maybe it's maybe it's all the same. I, I'm willing to, to to give it a shot. It's a gr- it's a great um, preview that Candace has done. I urge people to check it out. It looks like the die rolling is one of these combat resolution things where like you hit on a six and you know and like the big ships get two dice and the little ships get one die. And I mean, I guess you know I enjoy Eclipse, and that's kind of how Eclipse. Works. There's ways to mitigate that. Some games do it better than others. So I'm curious. I I love the aspect to which that dice can keep thing keep you guessing, heighten the mood. Maybe there's something thematic about it that we you know will be. It looks really it's pirates. Pretty. It's pirates. It's pirates yeah. versus the United States. What Loving could go it. wrong? <laughs> no, I definitely will will check that out. And I'm mostly just you know um, curating my image as the guy who hates dice on the podcast so yeah as 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 has been brought up before you got to keep that that table image going or else maybe someone else will give it to you so right you got to project it hard as paul would say would maybe say i don't want to put any words into the what did he describe himself as he had a bunch of words he had like yeah (laughs) none of them should be believed yeah, <laughs> part of his table. I think that was definitely a takeaway from table images. Like, don't trust anybody on their own take on their table image. That's you, you may try to control your table image. What what you actually succeed in is is something else entirely. Can I give one more right. piece of news? Just the briefest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a shout out to an occasional uh, guest on the podcast, Matthew Robinson, <laughs> has a their movie uh, Love and Monsters is now streaming on Netflix. So just wanted to oh, yeah. give them a give them their due as kind of foundational part of this podcast. Their creative output, um, no non game, non game, but maybe will be rendered into game. Seems like a, a good IP to be done done so. Whoever out there maybe wants to pitch, uh, this is the time. This is the place. People definitely should check it out. And that is the news. Did you notice which version I played? I, I did. Know, I was. I was quite surprised. I was a little bit. Um, I was wondering which one you would do. That's all I'm saying. I rolled some <laughs> dice beforehand, and I came. Well, up you with said that this was your preferred version, and so I want to respect that when you're uh, when you're present.
<laughs> Thanks, Trey. <laughs> and when you turn your back, I will, uh, I will, I will go back to my normal way. So, uh, Alfred, what what games are on your brain? So, I will say that um, amidst all the topics that will be brought up, and I don't want to just repeat myself as I have been repeating and rinsing out my my skill sets uh, and doing all I can. I've, I'm involved in two tournaments currently, so we don't have to mention that too hard. But what I will say is that a strange aside happened that really did cause me to think more critically about the game space in general, in, in total, in entirety. And that is, it has been postulated much, and you'll see it in like any kind of amount of clickbait about the universe being a simulation. Has this come up to you? Have you I've seen, seen this? the movie The Matrix? Yes. Okay, there you go. Yeah, washed up on your digital shores. But no, slash... right. it's, a, it's kind of a philosophical model of can you tell and does it matter? And yeah, and there's and there's lots of speculation about the hows and whys. And I don't know if this thought came to me or an original state in some sort of gyre of of putting it together, maybe just staring at screens too long, or maybe I, I heard this from some sort of philosophical text elsewhere. But the answer that came up to me, and this is where it where it gets to game, is that if if we were living in a simulation. Don't you think it'd be more fun? Don't you think there'd be a better game that we're actually playing with more demonstrable re- recourse or our asset gain would be accruing points and some sort of, you know, there's plenty of belief systems, including karma that kind of chalks up Dharma, karma, whatever you want to call it, chalks up how good you're doing at the game. But this simulation seems like a pretty bum rap. So this is my argument that we're not living in a simulation, that there's not some neat and tidy bow across the whole thing. And I would just bring it up to you in part. The reason I was thinking about it for this episode is you design games. Do you have a do you think there would be is there something you would imagine as being a useful like way of accruing points in this simulation? If it was to be, what would be? an actual satisfying one, like one that you could sink your teeth into. You were mentioning very presciently this idea of learning and we do a certain amount of that, but we also stop learning probably when we're like 20, right? We just kind of like wall off and we just kind of go with what we know seemingly, not everybody, but I'm just saying like, okay, here's the thing. It came out uh, that the average listener stops acquiring new music at the age of 33. From then on out, you're just listening to the same stuff. Like you tune out from anything new, and you're just cruising with what you know. That isn't learning a new game. That means game over for music, at least if we're going to put it in those terms. And that's very, very critically, like very important to me, obviously, as being a person who still does that thing of releasing music. Um, but yeah. No, I don't, I don't have any answers as a, as a as a game designer or like how do we, yeah, or, or, or maybe I, I do because we're always explaining like how do you define fun, how you quantify fun. So if you're saying this simulation sucks <laughs> and it should be more fun, like how would we measure that? Um, I, I think there's other people that would say, I, you know, I don't know. I think uh, I, I find a hard time complaining about um, my life and it's only, you know, I I kind of like living in this time period. I'm not sure I'd want to live in a different time mm-hmm. period when you actually look at it. So it's hard for me to say this, you know, um, and, but that's, of course, I'm talking from a position of privilege where I, I think I owe it to be grateful for um, the, the life I have. And yeah, I should... you got first player. You got first player in the pick of things. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> we well, all did. We all got I first like player. Have, yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like we all did and kind of have to have to um, acknowledge that. I think that's also important for like things to be fun. Like there has to be a range of things. Maybe like you have to experience some struggle in order to make the uh, the highs and 
and and pleasures high. I, I do find like you're you're I think you're probably right that the amount that people learn and continue to adapt declines over time. But I feel like for me, I'm very consciously trying to struggle against that. Mm. You know, where um I, I tend to also like like people that self-identify as like I'm always learning. I want to be learning like people that uh, when they retire from their jobs, but then immediately start going to school yeah. like that. Those tend to be the kind of people that I I like. And I feel like that's part of the reason that maybe we're in to board games, for example, is um, like part of I feel like the culture that at least that we're in is like we want to continue to learn new games, have new experiences. We're not just going to play the games that we now we still have some nostalgia for the games we played in the 90s, maybe. Yeah, but so I take it. OK, so you're a vote for that. We are in the simulation. I got it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is it? What does it get you? Uh, I mean, a big philosophical question, but like if you if you does rejecting this theory help you or does embracing this theory help you? Like what is, what's the takeaway from it anyway? That's, and I think that gets to the root of both gameplay and, and what it is that this wants to be. If it, if it is a simulation, does anything matter? If it's not a simulation, does anything matter in a game much the same? Does winning actually matter? Especially if there's another game queued up at the other side of it. Um, all right, so let yeah. me flip this. Let me flip this uh, kind of kind of your question a little bit because this goes to my games on the brain because I've been playing uh, not a board game. I've been playing a lot of Valheim. Mm-hmm. And Valheim is a survival game and it is definitely a simulation. And I think like the danger is actually that like the pleasures of this digital game, this simulation end up like I don't think my brain can make a really decent and or any human brain makes a decent distinction between the successes and pleasures of the digital world versus the real one like mm. I think there is a danger in games like this that they uh like the the things that I need to feel like I'm achieving things and I'm I'm getting stuff done like unfortunately like oh I've now moved from the bronze age into the iron age and I've got these new things and you should see my farm and you sh- I did this you know cool new build here and I've been training and breeding wool two star wolves you know and like it unfortunately like I my brain is a little too geared towards putting myself by choice into a different simulation where things are easier and these pleasure points as you say are fed to me on a much more reliable <laughs> basis. Like mm-hmm. it's it's really easy to go down that rabbit hole because it's a very nice rabbit hole to uh, to go down to. That said, um, uh, it's a. I think it also has some interesting board game uh, comparisons. Just in that this game has proven to be very interesting to play both solo. And as a game that we play with friends and the way that we shift between when we do things on our own as a solo player and then we come together to kind of like accomplish group goals uh, works really well. And I think we do that a little bit in in board games, too, where we have, uh, you know, Matt especially, you know, plays a lot as an individual player and you get different things from your different interactions uh, with with the groups that you play would be would be my takeaway. I mean, I would throw out too that there's certain games that are that feel more solo, even in, in the group setting. And, and I know we malign at times the, the 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 team solitaire games, but there is something of a pleasurable space that you can have amongst amongst others 
kind of in your own grind, making the gears turn, even when it is just like looking at your own board and kind of maximizing. There is there is something beautiful to that. Um, like you're saying, video games do that very, very, very well in the modern age. And there's plenty of mine, you know, of Minecraft or, or uh, you know, these kind of games where you're just endlessly farming. I, I would postulate, and this is something that I have a problem with and maybe goes back to my point. I have plenty of games. I love these open sandbox RPGs where you can kind of grind up great gear and move things, but I almost never finish them. Uh-huh. I just kind of do the side quests endlessly. Like I had this with Cyberpunk 2077 recently. I, I've gotten to this crazy level where I can kind of defeat anything and I feel confident that I can take on the boss and I I stopped playing. And I couldn't mm-hmm. tell you that it's like, okay, I'm going to stop playing now because I'm satisfied. It was much more like just my brain wandered off at that point because maybe I had done the thing or maybe it's actually just that like, I don't want to finish the experience because I don't want it to come to a close close, or I don't feel like it's going to be a satisfying close compared to the grindiness of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if with Valheim, is there an end to Valheim? Well, no, I mean, what it is, is there's kind of like you progress through different biomes, you know, like as you kind of like upgrade through technology type of thing. And so definitely there are plenty of people that have like, We've completed anything that you would call content, and yet they continue to play mm. because now, like the sandboxiness of it, especially with the tool set where you can build these different structures, um, people continue to play just because they enjoy being in this world. That said, everybody's looking forward to future content releases. Um, and even then, like the amount of what you would actually call content in the game is relatively low. It's more like creating, you know, releasing a new environment or a biome to use the language that will present new challenges and kind of add in like more difficult, but also add in probably slightly different gameplay, uh, to people for people to engage in. But you know, like there's not a definitive end to the game right now. And there's plenty of people that are still like continuing to play because it's a nice place to be. So like games don't necessarily need to have endings. And you're like, and, uh, you know, when you choose to stop playing is, you know, there's good reasons for it or not. Are there any board games that are like that? Are there any board games that don't stop? I know Go is near infinite. Like the only time it ends technically is when every space is full or you have Atari or these kind of situations where you can't make an inroad, but technically you could just play until the stones are out and the wheels fall off. But is there like uh, our style of, you know, like euros that just kind of go. Yeah, I don't think so. I think, I don't think so. Especially because like, just think about like the way that we teach board games. Also, a lot of times is you talk about how do you win? How do you win? How does the game end? What are we working towards? That tends to structure so much of, of what we do. So um, maybe that's a good question for, uh, our, our listeners, if something that's popping into your mind right now, we'd love to hear about it on Facebook. Maybe it's something obvious that we're forgetting, but it does seem, seem like the, the finite nature of a board game is kind of necessary. I mean, maybe uh, I can think I was just the thing I was thinking about is almost like jigsaw puzzles where like maybe you never finish because you can't complete it. But like that has an end condition mm-hmm. and maybe you don't get there. Like it sounds to me like you've decided not to do the final boss in in uh, cyberpunk is that right or you just kind of lost interest before or i feel like i just kind of yeah just kind of stopped picking up the controller so it doesn't feel like a conscious decision to not do the thing it it felt like i just kind of wandered off and i've done this on several games now i did this on like various zelda games and and also every um 
it, it's a particular problem of mine, but I just wonder. No, no, no. I don't think it's, yeah. it, I don't think it is partic- necessarily particular to you. I mean, um, this goes to, I think this is really something that goes to like theory of fun mm-hmm. and, and, and Raph Koster is like, there, I, it, I think it's showing that there's a difference between when the game tells you you're done completing the final boss and when your brain is telling you you're done, which is that you have nothing more to learn from this game. Especially right, when I've gone to the place where I like have the sniping rifle and I have my abilities, everything's maxed to the, and like, I don't know if I would be brought back in with DLC that would have a new ultimate maybe. gun, maybe, but maybe. equally, I think there is that thing of like, I kind of stopped learning the system, even though there's plenty more to discover in terms of secrets and twists and turns and storyline. But there's something about the evolution of my character. Like I love skill trees and uh-huh. that's kind of, I've kind of have done it at least on the, the route I took. I could start over again and have a different skill tree in mind or like, or zero my points and like build it up differently. I don't know if it would bring me joy in the same way and that sense of discovery. Yeah. I never finished the fallout games. Gosh, I have this like litany, a graveyard of games I never. Well, I think quite that's did. totally okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I mean, some people are completionists, and so it's important to kind of check that box. It sounds like you know you're you're not, um, but it's also like it's. I think it points out that there's a difference between, um, like, like you don't have to experience all the content for you to have learned what you're going to learn from a game, like just yeah. more content or more text. Like that may not actually really be, that might not be the, that's not why we play those games is to read every word <laughs> or to hear every beat of the story. If the game's taking you where it's going to take you, it's time to put down a controller and find some, some better fields to plow. Because like, I, cause that's what I think is like, I think we are still always trying to learn. Mm, and I, um, yeah. that makes a lot more sense to my, my brain and how it's actually playing out. Even if it's not conscious of that, that's, that's very and I wonder then with Valheim, what you'll do if there's, you know, it'll definitely it, come to an end. Yeah, mm. it'll, it will come to an end. And, and, um, um, I, I kind of look, I kind of look forward to that, but I'm also like, I'm enjoying the social experience with other friends, but like, we're having people fall off now. That's normal. You know, like I think for a lot of people, like they've, they've gotten what they've gotten out of the game and they're ready to move on. And, um, I guess I'm finding I'm just a little bit more addictive. I have more of an addictive personality. I wish it came out for Mac because it sounds like my stuff. And uh, one of these days I'll be like the last person in. it'll come out for Mac and I'll be running through the door just as you're exiting and and others are out. That's how it goes sometimes. Well, there's also like a final thing uh, to kind of point out about, you know, lessons from Valheim that relate to how we play board games is that I think part of the pleasures of playing a, a survival exploration game like Valheim is discovery. For one thing, like every world is unique. It's, it's randomly, it's procedurally generated or whatever. So you can't just share the map of the world the way you can, can in some other games. But, um, you know, a lot of the pleasures of the game are in discovery. And I think if, if this is something that you would like to play in the future, I'm almost like cautioning you now, like, don't go and look at YouTube, uh-huh. you know, like, don't have the, like, don't have the helpful friend who comes and tells you how to do everything. <coughs> Cause that's the game. The game is learning this stuff. And like, sometimes you might get stuck a little bit and you might want a little bit of help and your brain's thinking about it and you have this, you know, you can kind of get another access, but like having someone explain everything about the game takes the fun away and i think there's some of that in Mm. board games too where it's like you need to understand the rules in order to play but you don't necessarily want somebody saying and here's and here's proper strategy 
or here's the dominant strategy, especially when it's just the t- the group meta rather than the actual thing. Especially if when we're wrong, <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when, we, when we haven't played against actual good players. Yeah. Through the ages. I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, yeah. I love it. Oh, well, let's do it. Uh, let's, uh, let's switch to our game review. Um, so today we are reviewing uh, Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. This is a game for two to four players. It has a 120-minute playing time. That seems low. Um, and a weight of 4.41 on BGG. Uh, the designers, Vlada Shavadl. Uh, artists on the game are Philip Mermak, Radim Peck, Jakub Pulitzer, and Milan Vavron. And the publisher is Czech Games Edition, which is Vlada's company. Uh, so, Alfred, why did you choose this game? Why are we reviewing this game? Absolutely. It is a painful, beautiful, masterful game that has recently uh, had an evolutionary step. It was the game that we knew for many, many years. And during the online existence, it uh, it gained extra cards. It gained an extra dimension of 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 what would essentially be space to explore, um, leaders to play, space to explore, that changed the nature of the game during this pandemic time. And I feel like it is so interesting to 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 have a game to which it is both like a kind of known entity of there there are certain aspects of of strategy that we can we can kind of speak about but the real idea is that there is a few levers to pull in the game and those levers were slightly skewed and to me that reinvigorated my interest in the game that changed the way i i kind of thought of oh this is the way i've played it this is the way i've explored it these are the things that will happen in the course of the game these are the cards i'm looking for there was that little bit of remix that made it so it refreshed and i wanted to talk about it with y'all yeah, so this game um, has gone through a number of kind of evolutions. It, yeah, it was first released as uh, Through the Ages, A Story of Civilization back in 2006. Then it got a revamp in 2015. And now we have a an expansion with the Leaders and Wonders expansion, which kind of like specifically did a uh, a power balance on some of the leaders and also introduce some new ones, revise some old ones, introduce some new ones, both uh, leaders, which are an aspect of the game and uh, wonders, which are aspects. So like the game now has, has existed for a while. So it's had a chance to kind of get fine tuned. Mm-hmm. That's an important game. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say exactly. It was, it's an important game because it really does represent a twist and a turn on other card, similar games. It's not twilight struggle, where you have events, it it is a a game that eschews one modality. It has a conflict aspect, which you are banging on the heads of the people around you. It has one where you're kind of looking at your own board, making changes and evolutions. But there is also a, a group play where you are not just pinging each other, but you're kind of having to have an awareness of where things are going. It does a bunch of these in a very elegant way and also in a way that's brutal. And so I think it suits our game group in a way that I don't want to like call us out for, but the, the, the laughter I can imagine Paul is doing when he takes this particularly pointed move. <laughs> it's sure. That's the kind of stuff that makes this game. Oh, this is like an us game. This is like a, 
Or when Ben very reasonably is like throws his hands up in our particular instance of a game that we played this week and was just like, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be the target for a little bit. I mm-hmm. felt for Ben, but I also was like, oh, this is we're now bonding like this is awesome. Like we're a game group. Not in a mean way, but like in a like, so let me do my let me do like my two minute uh, yeah. for those that haven't played. Here's let me give you my two minute, hopefully summary of the game so this is this is a civilization game like this is a genre and maybe what felt new about it when it came out was that it was a civilization game with no map um especially if you think of classic civilization like the map is where the game is played for the most part and like through the ages got rid of the map and said it's just going to be about the tech and the interactions not like where our pieces are on a board and so it's attempting to model human human civilization through the ages get it um from like the bronze age to the modern age uh and everybody unlike a lot of games that we play now that have asymmetrical starts everybody starts the same here like the only difference is turn order but then as the game progresses our civilizations start to grow very different with different powers different streaks and weaknesses that other players try to uh exploit this is a turn-based game And unlike a lot of games that we play now that have kind of like micro turns that are real quick where things happen on other people's turns, for the most part, these are big turns. These are kind of like mega turns where you're going to take a number of actions at once and then like submit your turn. At least that's the way we play online. But, you know, you might have later in the game like 14 actions uh, over the course of your turn before you hand it over. So this means that you can really spend a lot of time, a big decision space, trying to determine what you what you do with your turn. And like Paul really enjoys the undo function on the <laughs> on the app, which is like he you can explore trying different things of how you're allocating your resources within your civilization in order to kind of come up with your optimal build for this turn. And then, you know, stuff happens. Uh, games played over four ages. Uh, antiquity middle ages age of exploration modern era antiquity is just like the setup like it's just like how you determine your 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 starting cards uh and then the way it actually plays out is that you like i said you have a number of actions you play on your turn this grows as the game progresses generally the number of actions you have is based upon the government that you have but what you're doing on your turn is your um raising your population you're assigning your population to do certain things like i'm forming an infantry unit or i'm going to make more science so that i have more tech points um you're you're one of the probably the most unique thing about the game or the thing that sticks sticks out in my mind is the way that you get cards in the game cards flow into the game based upon what age of the deck you're using like say we're in the early in the game we're using the age one deck cards are flowing in on a board in which you have to spend actions to take these cards and the idea is cards that have just entered the card pool cost three actions they're the most expensive for you to grab that's very expensive in terms of your action economy and the longer they stick around the cheaper they get so to the point where they're only a single action to take and then they move off like some cards go away and no one ever ever takes them but what it means is like the cards don't actually have to be completely balanced because the players themselves can kind of um, make decisions of like a really super card you might spend three actions to get it if it's critical to your to your strategy um you know it allows a lot of kind of player action in order to balance the game um so you're, you're, you're making these decisions. You're also like choosing a leader that's going to give you special powers and make you different than other people. You're building wonders, which are going to give you special powers. So there's a lot 
There's a lot going and there's on. Even, and can- there's even more because don't forget, you're also selecting territories because there, even though there isn't an aspect of you are placing on the board, but there are these bonus territories that exist. There is all these extra, um, extra right, kinds of lands. Not actions, just making, yeah. And they're not just making science, but also building all these other buildings that do special things and points. Notably as well, I'll just add is, this too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just it is a big that. Civ game. Like it's a big Civ game, and you don't know what the what's actually going to count at the end, because that's something else that comes up as cards. There is a separate set of cards that basically will tell you what will be counted as points. You can generally know what's going to be. There's only you know there's only so many in the game, but at the same time there is this little variation of like, well, maybe the number of actions are going to be the most points, or maybe the most military will be additional points, or maybe the kind of how much farmland you've made will be additional points. So. There's a little bit of variability in that in that regard as well. That's important. Yeah, this this game definitely appeals to my engine builder mentality here. And but it is not a game of multiplayer solitaire at all, um, because like the engine you're building is then going to compete. And I think we talked about like, you know, both like grabbing colonies, grabbing cards, there's literal wars which can determine the the fate of the game and um, aggressions, and then we're going to compete over these scoring events. So, it, you know, Alfred, is this a is this a competitive game? Yes, it is a, a game though that requires a lot of knowledge. In the same way that I wondered if it would appeal to you as someone who has built decks in this other parallel world to our board gaming space, these kind of deck games where you know the card pool that's available, you know what's out there, you know what you're playing against relatively. You see the way somebody will come out with a certain deck and you have a chance to maybe change your strategy midfield because you know what's coming. This game requires so much knowledge for it to be competitive. But when you do have that absolute knowledge, I think it really sings because you you really are controlling tempo, which is a key thing in, in a competitive game, as well as you are forming a, a kind of diverging set of strategy that, or tactics, depending on how you're playing, that can really come to a fruition. You can really make it sing in that regard. Um, but that absolute knowledge is upended when you have these new card sets, as well as there's not really that much hidden knowledge in the game. There's not that much hidden action other than with the military cards. Those are hidden. But um, you, you, most of it's kind of played up in front of the player where you kind of know what's coming, you know what's on their board, you right. know what there's they're building hidden, towards. There's hidden knowledge in terms of what in people's hands but we actually know all the cards in the game the game tells you like here's the cards we're playing with and uh part of the random setup of the game is that sometimes you're playing with certain cards and not others uh napoleon might be in this game might not be in another game certain wonders might appear in some games and not in others and so for the uh experienced player this is kind of like when you wander up to Terra Mystica and you kind of see, well, what are the rewards for the various rounds? And what are the, what are the bonuses, bonus rewards you can take when you pass end up like defining the game. I think there's a thing to through the ages where you come up and you say, okay, what, what wonders are in the game? What leaders are in the game? This is going to push things in a certain direction when you really understand it more. And, and that person who can track card use where every time someone plays a, uh, an event, it, mm. a, a really keen player will track every event that plays and knows the percentage chance of that coming out during a, another event moment. Because the way it happens is if someone decides not to play a political action, you skip drawing cards from that particular deck. There's no events that come out. But if somebody is engaging in the political action, then they are running the risk of a different 
political action paying or like a different event happening. So there is this little push and pull that happens in that moment where you know that someone played a famine and you know it's coming up. So you don't want to stockpile too much food. This is advanced gameplay, but it really plays into what is this game? This game is, there is a little bit of this like absolute knowledge. Yeah. Maybe just to clarify your point so that people understand it. And maybe, and maybe this goes to like my dislike of certain amounts of, of, of certain kinds of randomness in games sometimes is like, there would be plenty of games where there will simply be an event deck and we'll pull from it and something will happen. Oh, a famine hits. Everybody loses half their food. Like we've played those games. That's not how this works exactly. Rather, famine is a card that someone got into their hand and then they chose to add it to the event deck. And these de- these events kind of get queued up. They're going to be like a, they're going to go into this pile, then they're going to get shuffled and then they're going to come out. So Alfred and only Alfred knows that famine is in there. And uh, now knows like we're now in the window where if I play an action, another an, an event, another event's going to get triggered. So I have this, you have that knowledge of like, I got to keep my food stores down. Don't leave a lot of food because that could really nail you. And Trey's sitting over there and he's got 12 food sitting there. And oh, I'm praying for a famine because this is going to devastate his game if the, if the famine comes out. So that's like a higher level of skill that like player input ended up having a certain amount of control on uh you know what comes out with the game so we played a tournament we've played some tournaments in this now last year candace uh from the podcast has kind of introduced us to a tournament and what did what did we find out in this tournament alfred oh we don't know how to play this game <laughs> <laughs> we've, or at least we we had it you see it's one of those wonderful examples we had an internal dynamic that made us feel like we were getting these like point totals that seemed if like oh we're getting we're getting point totals that match points that are out there in the world that mean something we're ending strong we feel like we're you know like all these actions and all these military and all these things and then you take that out into the real space the kind of wider space and you just yeah it I, it made me feel like, oh, this is a game I have not yet studied. I do not know. I only know my small slice of it. There are higher levels of understanding, which we have not tapped. Now, just for clarity, we did not do terribly in this tournament. Uh, we were not, I think, Paul, like, we were all from the same group. We all kind of did somewhat similarly. I like, it was a round robin tournament within these groups. Like, uh, None of us advanced to the final four from our group of 12, nor were we in the bottom. So we kind of found out like we know something, but there's also like a whole nother layer or two of players out out there that we are not members of. Uh, it doesn't mean we can't get there, but we're certainly not like uh, maybe this is going to get to competitive list competitiveness later on. But like, I think that like the limit on our skill in this game is limited by the fact that we just play with each other. Like we have to play the better players in order to expand our understanding of, of the game at this point. And that's a beautiful thing though. It really does point towards the fact this is not a solitaire style game, even though the board is in front of you, you're playing cards kind of hidden. It, it tends to be your efficiency may not rely on someone else's gameplay. Of course, things like military upend that, but if say you're playing a strategy where you're running consistently second in most of the categories you have a very good chance of winning in this game because you're kind of in stealth mode people tend to get you know pick on the person at the bottom which tends to make them spiral worse and we'll get into more about that probably soon but there is a a different level of gameplay that that i think is potentially can happen when you get that interaction ratcheted higher up where 
it's not just about kicking the person at the bottom to get their few supplies so that you can do better. It's really about knowing when to hit the throttle and to move. And uh, and the critical, the very critical cards that come out that are powerful, maybe game imbalanced, just in the sense that they're very powerful leaders or wonders, but you know how to mitigate that and play against it because of all the ages. You There's certain moments where, where leaders will take dominant leads and have good strategies, but I think this game really, especially with the new edition, uh, gives you every opportunity to mitigate that if you just know what you're doing. But if you don't, you will be subjected to yet another Michelangelo in gigantic you know, cultural lead that just runs rings around you. That's a little bit inside baseball, but yeah, that's, <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about, the, let's talk about this. I feel like this game was a reaction. I mean, back in 2006 or whatever, it was a reaction to previous Civ games. And I think one of the things it's also a reaction to is that um, like, it's very hard in this game to bash the leader. Like when you're actually like leading militarily, at least you're kind of invulnerable to other players. And so a lot of other games that we play where people can gang up on the leader, that's hard to do here. A lot of other games where like a typical, some games that we play, you know, if we're playing a three or four player game and you and I fight Alfred, typically the winners of that are the other people you and I fought. And we both spent a lot of resources fighting. So the real winners are Paul and Tom. That's not the way this game works, though. Like, there's heavy rewards for aggression and not a whole lot of costs. So when you are the most military dominant power, like, there's a lot of rewards that can happen. There's a lot of things in the game that can reward you for dominating militarily. And it also means, um, like, as a downside of the game, is like, it's actually hard to target somebody who is defending themselves well. Go, Go ahead. I just I was just going to offer too that I feel like this is a game where you're supposed to know in advance of when somebody takes the dominant lead. When somebody you're supposed to know that like okay well they are building towards something they're playing a leader that goes this way so I need to starve them of some other resource be it their their food or their iron uh production I need right, to You can deny them the cards that they need for their engine that's something you can do yes. But you kind of have to do that as a group. You can't do that as just one individual. You can't recognize it and so, you know, even though we don't tend to play this game as a, hey, look at that person over there, you need to play against that person. Maybe that's inherent to the game that we should all be like cajoling each other. There should be some sort of meta game that's happening where we're we're kind of talking it out. Because when you do put your head down, that's when somebody really does emerge as like, okay, they are unstoppable. They are, their engine is moving and the game does not, other than there's a handful of event cards. There's terrorize and or terrorism. And there's like one other one that like, gives you the slim, the tiniest bit of like, oh, right. Like there's a few, there's a few events yeah. that kind of do this. Yeah. It's the small, like just very to be clear, like, um, when you, a cultural lead in this game is attackable. It's not like when you're, when you're winning, you're, you're unassailable in terms of your points. Rather, I am speaking more like a military dominance. Like as long as someone is, is, has the highest military, like there's certain things that just can't touch them. Now you can build up your own military and surpass them. But, uh, like actually like in order for like controlling the game often means being the most dominant militarily. Um, and that's a tough lesson to learn. I will say that that there. This is where those kind of new deck of cards switches things up. I think there was a certain okay. modality where some of that that aggression was very rewarded, and the new cards mix that up slightly. But 
I don't know if it's a convincing amount. And also there's new emergent strategies on the kind of military side. There's new ways to go now and to be dexterous between the tactics and the military. So I kind of get the idea that it's still a core conceit that you can't lose sight of one of the important levers. You, you, you will always tend to do well if you are military dominant. There is a ways to attack points, but there are ways of accruing enough points that you can kind of you can build some some room between you and the nearest competitor that you can kind of lap them, so to speak, and make it impossible. Even if they start dinging you at the end of the game, if it's too late, if they if they hit their 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 military might a little too late in the game, it's kind of tough. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a that's a different matter. It is totally attackable. You're absolutely right, and you can see the bloodletting once, especially bloods in the water. It, it's a cruel game. Yeah, right. I, this is what I kind of called the like the wildebeest problem of this game, which is that we're we're all these kind of like carnivorous creatures in this game, and we're growing our military. And um, woe be to the player who becomes the wildebeest, who the other players dominate over because everyone is going to make a meal of that other player and that's not a that's not a fun thing um but it's a competitive game you understand that and so you kind of play defensively so i'm not saying that like hey military is the way to go in this game that's not at all what i'm saying but you do need to be aware of like very well like how military works both in terms of how it affects events and wars and aggressions and you need to be tracking this stuff so that you don't become the wildebeest because there's definitely a danger that that you can become the wildebeest we've all been there yeah. and and that's not necessarily a fun gaming uh emotional experience when you're the wildebeest in your game among friends well especially when you're locked in for however many like you know 120 minutes is optimistic with this game and you can be the wildebeest pretty quick and then suddenly if you get dinged enough you're going to be in that reverse pole position for a while if not for the term of the game you could you could be that you know there's there's not to say that there isn't fun to be had exploring but you can just get like you know your buildings get picked off your leader gets picked off all these things start to happen to you and you become and it can snowball right you can have a negative snowball in the game and i think like we stopped playing for a while because like we there were these kind of like feel bad moments sometimes where it's kind of like do we really want that among uh you know because like how competitive are we playing um because we don't want feel bad moments necessarily among among friends and i've heard this before talked about in the podcast where this is the difference between the kind of old school euro model and the new school euro model the old school being you would have these punitive games where you could lose in the first round quote unquote and you would just you're there you're in it the splatter philosophy yes yep Mm-hmm. And then, or even, you know, you see it happen in some 18xx, you know, some critical motion happen, miss, misfires, and you're just like, okay, you're out to see. Um, but then on the flip <laughs> like side, you still have four g- hours of gameplay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, that's mitigated sometimes because the games are short or because there are these like different ages or places to make changes. This game doesn't exactly do that it doesn't the totally like there's different emerging strategies that happen throughout the game and you know there's cards that you can kind of work towards there is one thing that is worth mentioning and this is a very specific circumstance but it's an example in the game where you could be losing militarily but maybe not so bad down the down the 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 range of things that you were totally picked on and then there is this like third age leader of gandhi which is maybe woeful that this person comes out as the pacifist but then you're suddenly shielded from some kinds of attacks right right and so there is this strategy of, well, okay, if I can just make it through to get Gandhi, 
I can kind of stealth my way without being the military dominant. And I don't know if that's great game, but it certainly is interesting. That it's like a specific moment that can happen that can kind of revive and, re, you know, make certain ideas possible. So it's nice that it's built into the game. There's a variety of leaders and wonders that mitigate certain pressure points. So it no, isn't old right. school in that way. It isn't like the old school games where you're just like, it is so chess-like that you start losing and you're just like bleeding, but it is really hard to know the right time to do the right thing. And that is, is, is makes for wonderful game moments when you do recognize it. But maybe, maybe that mixture of like, maybe this is a evolutionary step. This is our homo sapien forefather, or whatever forebearer that is not quite old school gaming Euro style, but not new either. No, I, th- I think what you're talking about um, is one of those things like and when you understand the game better, you can look and see, oh, Gandhi's in this game. There's a few other leaders like that where like that can end up meaning like I may not have to be in the in in the military battle so much once I get to a certain point. And then other times you're like, there's no Gandhi. Like this is going to be a punch each other in the face kind of game. And you want to make sure you're not uh, the wildebeest. So I think like this dynamic is a negative for some people that have played the game. Uh, I don't, I, I think that's probably the case with Ben. I felt like the, the game uh, nations that came out, which is very much feels like a response to through the ages and has a lot of similar gameplay there, but just kind of like took the edge off of, the military and, and that people got less, uh, less, a little less targeted, a little less effect of the military game, like nations, uh, polished that a little bit so that it was less negative gameplay, uh, which is a game I like very much too. And I kind of get it. Uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, you know, getting stuck in a horrible game of through the ages. And it, it seems bad a lot of times when we play that there's like one person who's there, like that feels like too much sometime but anyway nations feels like a reaction to to through the ages Mm -hmm. in that way so uh the good and the bad when you think of this game tell me the things that you feel like really are are wonderful and that we should champion to our listeners out there about through the ages it's a deep game that with study gives you dividends gives you a really rich endlessly variable path um to play that isn't to say that the game changes dynamically or changes radically game to game there will still be certain things but i'd love the fact that you can like okay i want to concentrate on this cultural aspect i want to concentrate on these buildings that i can get what ways can i continually work in this direction and through repeat plays not necessarily do the same strategy because i don't know what's coming out i don't know what's going to happen next i don't know what my opponents are doing but i can kind of mind this in a way that feels meaningful now it isn't like the 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 backdrop of the game gives me this total sensation of well if i build up from a church to a bigger church like that isn't necessarily (laughs) the most satisfying uh experience but there is something about like you know building the arena and the kind of libraries that work in concert with these other things and there's like certain synergies that happen with leaders and i just it's a game that just rewards study in a way that i feel like some of the games that we play now are are very surface where there's a lot of deep strategies that, that occur but like not these like little specificities and like kind of nuances that can be very, very satisfying. Yeah, there's a lot of area to explore strategically and tactically in this game. And you can definitely look back at your game and kind of say, okay, I went from Alexander the Great to Leonardo 
Da Vinci to Napoleon <laughs> to you know Bill Gates. Yeah. They're like that's my leader track. Like you end up kind of being defined by your leaders and like what wonders you built. And so you know um, you have this incredibly high replay value. And th- for players, especially like Paul, who like explicitly want to explore the space within a game and may even play suboptimally in order to try something new like this game definitely has those venues the the downside of that is that it means the decision space to a new player can be very large to a point of uh, paralysis yeah Um, Yeah, this game would be punitive towards the ap neophyte who wants to read the text wants to understand the implication especially the down draft down game ideas that can occur there's certain things that do feel automatic to a seasoned player where in the very first moment you're building your iron up because you know it's going to be really important to someone who has never played before and they don't, you know, it isn't like it does it for you. They don't build iron for you. Maybe there's some some aspects of a really advanced gameplay that would skip this moment. Wouldn't build iron because somehow, but it seems like it's almost like an automatic. And so maybe this is a down downside, maybe it would be considered, mm-hmm. but also I think there's something refreshing about okay, well, these are the moves and they give you that variable spot. They give you the openness to, to kind of mess it up for yourself. So it's like generally a bad comment, but then there's some like brightness to that. I like that. I like that they don't well, like this is, hold This is hand. the trade-off that we're going to experience in a lot of games that we end up liking is that you know some of the games that are going to have the highest replay value are going to be the, the toughest teaches, right? Because there's going to be a lot and there's going to be a big decision space. It's going to be overwhelming initially but then once you kind of get over that hurdle then you're in a a a, a better space not of complete understanding because then we wouldn't continue to play it but where we're starting to engage things on a higher level and there's like these additional uh pleasures there i i I think ben and i have talked about this a lot when it comes to like 18xx in that like i it's it's not that i am not a fan of 18xx i'm just aware there's a kind of hurdle to overcome in learning those games to get to the spot and like that's a lot of time and that's a lot of energy and it and is, is 18xx where i want to spend that because we do have finite time um in, and but i think for there are plenty of people that have committed to 18xx and that's a happy play that's their valheim where they're they're happy to spend a lot of time playing different games with these slightly different permuta- permutations between the different 18xx's um you know, that was definitely a bad for like, I first played this game, um, I think in the late two thousands where it was taught to me at a convention mm. and I bounced incredibly hard off of it. And I was just like, Oh, this is just too much. No way. You know, like the decisions, like, I don't, I don't know. Plato. Should I, t- I don't know. Like, is it still, too, or, would you call it Baroque? Would, it, would that be, yeah. Would it be a kind of a Baroque game where it's, <sighs> I don't know if it'd be Baroque, but I'm just saying like, I, I've at times, this has been a narrative that's happened where I've bounced off games initially very hard. Mm. And then slowly I came back to them, got to know them and learned to love them. Like I did not love terraforming Mars originally, but like now I am a convert. I did Mm. not, you know, I did not like through the ages. And part of it also is like, uh, here's another criticism. Like the actual physical play of through the ages is very fiddly. Like we can argue about what that word means, but you are you are moving different colored cubes to represent, you know, my population goes here and I've got these blue cubes that represent resources and what, the, you know, the different things they represent depends on where they are on your board. But you're moving cubes around. 
a single sneeze will wreck a whole a whole hour and 20 minutes worth of game and 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 it's and that's a tough one when you're learning it it's like just learning the the mechanisms of you know how do I, I need another population. So I'm going to spend this much food. Now it goes here, but now my pop, you know, part of my civilization is unhappy. I don't have enough happy faces in order to keep, but, oh, but I can take another unit. And um, like, just in terms of rules and moving the cubes, like there's a lot. And that's one of the things, like, it's important to understand that, but like a digital implementation also kind of like takes care of all of that. It's everything, right? It makes it so much more possible to play this game in a, in a, not only a deeper level and to kind of read the cards in your own time, be it if that's the kind of way you're playing, but also just to like see how things like tempo can suddenly make a, make play a part where you're taking more cards off the board because you have the capacity to do so, you know what your hand is capable of. You, you can kind of see the down, down, uh, especially for things like the colonies, um, that come up, those kind of islands that come up where they, they actually at like a high level of gameplay, they make huge differences. If you know that certain colonies are going to come out, they, they really can change the, the kind of way that you can jump, uh, like ages basically, because you have access to resources that are a little bit more advanced, let's say. Um, it's a lot. It's so much. I could kind of, we could kind of go on and on in all these ways. Right, so, so, but I guess my, one of my points would be that this game is not for everyone. Yes. Like this does, this game does take investment. Like this game, like if you're going to learn this game and, and I think, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you should, it will be an investment there are going to be some painful games along the way. Like they may also be like, hopefully they're exciting you about the possibility of the space, but it wouldn't at all surprise me if a lot of people try to play this game, don't make it through or play it once and never return to it. Um, I think that it, that is a distinct um, possibility. I, I will just add too that I think as a bonus, but as a slight negative at the same time, this kind of these dualities, it's not an economic game. It doesn't, as much as you have resources, it doesn't have that it's economic. Engine builder. Yeah. It's an and, engine builder, but it's not, yeah. It doesn't have money. And the reason I bring this up as a, as kind of a positive is it's playing in a different space. Just like you were saying, it isn't a Civ game where you are, are kind of building on a map. You aren't, there is a sense of discovery, but there, there isn't this explicit territory. And just with the resources as well, there isn't this kind of hidden economies motion. You can know exactly what people are going to produce. They have it, those cubes right in front of them. You can, you can see their board. That's not part of the hidden information. It's very explicit. And I feel like most economic games, there's a certain aspect of this is the money I have. You don't know exactly what it is. Maybe you have a, 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 a sense of it, a whiff of it, but you don't know what it is. And so you don't like, it isn't the entire bit of the decision space or, or the victory points. There's much that's explicit in this game that's right in front of you if you know where to look for it. And that's part of it. Yeah, especially digitally, it tracks that stuff for you. I can look at Paul's tab and see that he's producing seven resources per turn and six food and, you know, five science and eight happiness or eight culture. You know, like it does that math in a way that in person, I think would be much tough. I'd be constantly having to kind of like look over and do the math. Uh, and this, this is important a lot of times because like, especially if you're going to engage in a war, you kind of need to be able to see, Oh, Paul should, you know, can or cannot respond to what I'm doing militarily. Cause he just doesn't have the resources to build what he needs to build in order to respond to me here. Um, 
So it's nice to have that representation. It just makes it easier because like in person, I don't think I'd ever actually want to play this game in person. Right? I this is a new evolution of the board game, right? Because yeah. you have the situation where it would be like pulling teeth to ha- constantly ask, well, how much happiness do you actually have? Can I, can I push you into an unfortunate place where you're going to be suddenly struggling? And I'm going to talk to you about this. <laughs> Before yeah. I do the aggression or not, like, oh, like this is going to not be fun. Like it even even builds on the not fun aspects of this game. Well, you're the, you're the rules lawyer of the group, but I think I'm I may be like the, the lieutenant rules lawyer in that there are times when we play games where I raise an eyebrow at certain people's moves where it doesn't seem to make sense that they could do something. And you don't, it's, you don't know, especially playing with strangers or something like that, you don't off, always feel like, Oh, that was legit. I see you moving a lot of cubes around over there, but I don't really know what's happening. Uh, and digitally, I don't have to worry. That's everything. I didn't enjoy this game expre- expressly for that purpose that before there it was almost impossible to track. It was almost impossible to have that kind of certainty that people were f- following the kind of great amount of rules that were out there. And also for myself, like there was that dissatisfying feeling of, Knowing that I had made a mistake maybe however many turns ago and not letting myself off the hook. This isn't a game where a simple error has little implication, even a simple error, like a small, just it, it has huge implications. And so you kind of need everyone to be the best rules lawyer they can be. Um, you and need or the game to enforce that stuff. Like I'm not saying people are cheating, but like there's a, there's this game has a ton and like it'd be very easy to misunderstand something and not apply the happiness rule correctly to uh, to yourself and here and like I, I'm not sure if I played an in person game that I would really understand when I just had a my population go into discontent, right? Um, or what the difference between famine and yeah re- re- rebellion, right? Famine and rebellion. Um, I guess yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, but that's the other downside of the digital implementation. Hold right. your hands so Red much that it's bad. Rid of- that's what I know. Angry faces <laughs> are bad. You can't you can't have them. You need to make them happy. Or at least, you know, not mitigate. Unhappy. Yeah. Mitigate. Yeah. And, and and but as as a competitive player, you are looking for ways to exploit the the times to which the your opponent is playing it too loose with too many red faces, or they're playing it like a little too close with not enough food or these little things that, yeah, I, I feel like in it, at least in the digital aspect of the game, you can play that fairly accurately. You can really look in person. It probably would amount even more time, if not more pain. So this game, yeah. this game um, was number two on the BGG rankings for 76 weeks in 2011. Mm-hmm. And then the new version hit number two again in 2016. And so it's now down and now it's down to seven, but still like this is a top 20 game. Uh, and it, it's, it's certainly been influential. I don't think you'd have a seven wonders um, without this game. Um, so, you know, definitely a recommend for game brainers out there to play this game. So maybe as a way of, of segueing into the, the member segment here though, do you think you would, enjoy playing this game more competitively against strangers. Yes. Yes. Because some of the aspects of the meanness would be mitigated. Some of the aspects of the purity of the gameplay, what is the important parts of the game? 
I think could be heightened or are heightened. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of wonderful extraneous paths to follow. Some really interesting non-winning strategies <laughs> where you're just building a civilization and maybe playing in that weird sim space of, well, what if, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or Leonardo, oh gosh, not Leonardo DiCaprio. Vinci. That would be a different game. Yeah. Da Vinci. <laughs> Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's Charlie Chaplin as a leader. They, they, I will say this, and this is one other negative. This plays fast and loose with a colonial style history of a Europe, European centered. There's, Hey, there's like Lao Tzu or Sun Tzu shows up and like, there's, you know, like Attila the Hun maybe for a moment, but like largely when, especially when we start getting into like the Renaissance era and further, like, is Bill Gates really better than whatever billionaire is coming from elsewhere? Like in the game. Sure. But so there's certain aspects of that, that I think I would enjoy more, not that, not that per se, but there are certain parts of just a purity of tournament might really reduce some of that to being like, let's play the most effective game possible. And so if we can, if I can do my little member segment, what I wanted to talk about today Mm -hmm. is, is, tournament is the tournament game the game that is both really matters what game you're playing in front of you and what totally is immaterial and what transcends whatever is in front of you in the kind of real game that is occurring the game within a game let's say and how oftentimes a board game is that game within the game because the larger game is the actual tournament rules you are playing the person you are playing against things that i think game brain enjoys but we don't really opt for the tournament play we're not opting for the jugular we often are looking for camaraderie and stories and i i adore that but i've been discovering this other joyful aspect of which in some of these games that don't make our table very often how much fun i can have playing optimally playing efficiently and 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 do getting points in a immaterial tournament world you know this is right and so I, and, and we're certainly not saying like this is good or bad but like as we explore a game like we're at a certain point now we're through the ages where i feel like there's almost no point in us playing among ourselves much anymore like we need to play against better players yeah if we want to continue to engage on this, because there, because I think what I hear you saying also is like, there are some specific pleasures that one would get from tournament play or more competitive play that we generally actually, we won't find Mm -hmm. at our own, you know, board game group gaming table. Is that right? Absolutely. And part of that goes to, there is a certain aspect, not of meanness, but there is certain kind of, well, yeah, meanness is a kind of efficiency. And, this is a game where we have made some slightly bad memories. Like you were saying, like there are some bad feelings that can happen when you're being the wildebeest or you have something that you're really looking forward to and someone takes it. And and I feel like in a kind of more casual game space that doesn't build the kind of memories that we want in a game. This isn't, this isn't to say that we're, we're never, we're not trying to put down the gauntlet. We're never, you know, like I think it's essential to a game that we are competitive Um but there are certain games that play that better. And I've been discovering that more and more. There are certain games that just do better competitively, partially because there are certain efficiencies of player count that occur. Uh, and those player counts yield um, more of a tete-a-tete, more of like a kind of meeting of the abstract. Um, and Through the Ages is a great example of, like, did we find it sung at a certain number of players? Did you find, did you, was there a player count that you liked better? 
Um, I'm I like four. BGG has best at three, and I suspect that some of that is just has to do with playing time. Right, but I also because think like it has to do with four. The, it made. Yeah. I was just going to say it also might have something to do with the tournament, where to play this competitively, four gets into a space where there's too much decision tree. There isn't. You lose some of the efficiencies and some of the aspects to which you can beat up on one player, like three players against one, rather than two on one or or one on two, as the essence would be. It. I think that maybe the pyramid works easier. It actually then divides better amongst the players rather than the three ganging up on the one, the weaker character might kind of break the tournament slightly or make it. um, Yeah. Less that sweet spot. Well, that might also be something to like competitive or tournament play is like something that has an extremely long play time does not lend itself. I don't think to tournament tournament play, right? Because you need multiple rounds, you need multiple plays. I think for a tournament to kind of work, right? If you have an eight hour play time, you can only have a couple of rounds. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's plenty of examples, though. Well, just, yeah, there's plenty of examples of games that do get played competitively where they're very ambiguous about how long they go for. And so this brings up this interesting aspect of tournament play, which is the external clock. Rather than having the internal clock of the game mechanism itself giving you the timing, you have these external forces that get put upon Uh the play. And that, at essence, creates a needfulness of the of the clock is ticking right so if you're going to have a tournament thing you actually need those time constraints right it can't be it can't be like the way we play asymmetrically where sometimes somebody takes 14 hours to take their turn that's not going to work in a tournament it's more like no you got five minutes to do your entire thing and the clock's running right or and, and i can give you, you, a, you give me an example of of a tournament you played with some people uh someone in, in europe right I was playing a Russian railroad game. It was a three-player count. So oftentimes when Russian railroad is played competitively, it's two players. It's kind of heads up. It it works very well for that player count. I I adore the game in part because it scales up and down very, very nicely. And it has to do with just the slightest amount of like one extra turn at four players completely changes the game. You you can achieve certain goals that you could never really reach for at a two-player um, there is kind of a finite, there is like an optimum or finite number of points you can get in the game. So it isn't like one of these games where I think the best point total you can get is 550 is kind of like this magic number of you kind of achieved everything. And it really takes special conditions to be able to do everything. And it's pretty much only doable at like that four player count, even though things are being stolen constantly, you would be hard pressed. But what I will say is that I was playing this three player game, Swiss system. We can talk about different tournament styles, but I did notice that some one of my opponents was in Europe, or maybe both, but at least one. They have these like flags from where you're from in BGA. Right. right. This is one of those things that maybe I'm a little bit ashamed of, I guess, because <laughs> in in a friendlier game, I would never do this. I don't feel like it it works in my table image. Let's. I don't know. I don't know what table image is uh, for myself, but I will say that I I don't feel this in my heart any malice. But noticing that they were playing, that they were we had like a 24 o'clock total on the game, so. As you are sleeping, you're burning time, mm-hmm. let's say. Needful, eating, sleeping, right? right. But at the same time, you're burning time. So you better better be prescient of it. This person had burned a certain amount of time that I knew that if I had just kind of waited an extra hour to play my turn, they would probably be asleep. And when they would wake, six, eight hours would have gone by and made their 24-hour clock pretty slim. And indeed, 
I think that might have factored into my victory because dang, they they got down to the point where they were like, if they don't do yeah. turns every second, like the end of a speed chess match where like you got no time, you just gotta keep make move slap, move slap, you know, move slap and mistakes. Yeah. Especially in a game like Russian Railroad, where you can really like in going back through the game log, you can know exactly where you made a terrible error because you did something that seemed efficient at the time, but that wasted beat is enough to ruin your game. And there's something very satisfying about playing the efficient game, but it's something really kind of weird and mean and, uh, and exciting about that clock ticking down and knowing that the clock is something that's going to exert a force on that player that will get them to make choices. And I, you know, the, the, the whole thing about the game clock, the kind of classic chess clock uh, analogy is, is present. And with tournament play, you, you find it expre- expressed in games that don't usually have those kind of metrics. I think one of the ways of thinking about this is, you know, often games are framed uh, in terms of like the magic circle yeah. that we step into. And it's kind of a, it can be a controversial metaphor, but I, I feel like one of the things we're saying is that we're do, when you're talking about tournament play or highly competitive play, you know, you're stepping into a different circle because I don't think like the, the takeaway should not be, Hey, when you want to play these aggressive games where you punch other people in the face, it's better to do it against strangers. Yeah. Like that's not the me- that's not the message. The message is more like no 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 no. But when you play tournament play and highly competitive play, like it's a different set of rules and understandings that everyone just understands. That you know you're deciding I'm going to be the boxer and I am stepping into that ring, and there are certain rules for that ring, and that's going to be different than the rules of our you know our casual game at Matt's office or Tom's office on on friday night and like that's important to understand and i will say too that i don't remember many of my matches especially ones i don't win right they they end up being okay this is a learning experience i'm getting something out of this but they don't stay with me like the stories that we tell each other and so there is this whole other kind of gameplay that i love in our group Mm. where we're making memories and a if i win a tournament which I have not done yet. Maybe that'll last with me, but I've gotten, I've, I've done well at some of these, these tournaments, but I can't tell you what number I'm at. You know, I can't tell you that I got eighth place or ninth place. I don't really recall. I did well enough to advance, but all I really need to know the game continues or it doesn't continue. There's a satisfying aspect to that. And then there's also this kind of, like, there is something about placing, but the storytelling aspect of it doesn't seem to come up as much now, but there is, there is really critical moments and decisions that I know I need to be on my a game. And that if I'm a little bit off center or if mm-hmm. I'm being thrown off by the clock or the positional play, somebody playing in a strategic way where they're, you know, like we were talking about through the ages, there is a way of playing the beats of the game. I think at tournament level, you would really be thinking about that. How can I either speed up that clock or, or slow it down? There's some games where that's very explicitly part of the game space. And and for instance, Russian Railroads, it's not really that tempo-ish kind of game. Like there is a certain amount of like, you only have so many pieces, you can count the pieces. On the, but with things, some of the, the resources like the trains, I can play an aggressive strategy of just constantly gobbling trains, even if it's not to my benefit, knowing that it's going to to irreparably alter the way that the other person has to react. They have to start catching up by taking more trains in advance of when they would normally maybe do it in a turn sequence. And although this might seem uh, kind of like arbitrary because of course they could do it at any point and kind of, but no, 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 the way you can exert pressure and force uh, starts to really have an implication. So I love that, that nuance between the two modalities uh, and 
I don't think as well. Um, I, I think there'll be some real joy in like a competitive game or these team-based games where we could play as a unit and kind of really work our strategies kind of, you know, there's a whole different level of tournament play where you could play a co-op game or play as teams. Um, there are certain games like uh, it's worth mentioning bridge is a really interesting game because it is a, or teach you at essence. Um, I, I'm sure Tom would, would echo this kind of feeling of satisfaction, being able to play really well with your partner, especially when there's limited information, um, and there's reasons why bridge and teach you and other games that are similar to that kind of stay relevant in, in, even if they're not played widely, they still play, stay as a tournament staple. They right? lend themselves to competition, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one I do the think there's certain things I think you were kind of getting at, like one of the benefits of playing a tournament or playing competitively is also like, um, you go and play a tournament and you lose like no big deal. You learn something like it's part. It's kind of the it's kind of the point. Uh, like ironically, like our friendly game uh, at game night. Like if you play a game and you fail epically, it might be a tale told for years. It might be <laughs> a smokescreen moment. You know, it might be that you know that that game from Battlestar Galactica that people are still mentioning a decade later or whatever. Like ironically, like the 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 downside stakes are much higher on the on the home game than they are on the competitive game or at least that's uh that's the uh, where I fit in. Yeah, the this. legend and lore of it feel different. And you know, I we played some rounds of of, you know, oh gosh. I I have been um wondering about what it's going to be like to regain rejoin our game group, right? To kind of get playing mm-hmm. again all together and how the new stories will get told and if anything from our online existence will carry over. If any, you know, it just doesn't seem like the space to, of epic stories. To. It has to, it has to, but, oh, but you, you, th- you think it might get separated off less. I think it'll be less. The, I think it'll um, be kind of, yeah, there'll be this little, like another asterisk to present. I, I will add one more thing to your, to your point. I do find that when I lose in a tournament, I end up rooting for the person who beat me to win it all as like maybe an ego boost uh-huh. to know that like right. I lost against the, even if they were lower ranked than me, rated than me, that they were secretly real sure. good. And so that's why I deserve to lose. There's a little bit of an ego bruising thing that's nice. It like kind of feels good to be swept up in that little bit of storyline, but it's very short lived. That person tends to get knocked out by somebody even weaker than them. And like you just question your whole existence <laughs> playing the tournament in the right. first place. It's neither here nor there. But yeah, it's, it's, there's a little bit of plot points. I had I had one other thought on the magic circle just to kind of of, yeah, of competitive play of tournament play um that that popped in my mind in it this maybe it's just helpful in like identifying these different types of gaming spaces mm. um you know when when we play as a group generally we allow backsies like it's often a point of discussion about when you allow backsies and I'd say like the more we've played the game the less we allow it allow it but still generally the idea is if 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 it hasn't affected somebody else's decision generally we will allow it if if someone is learning the game for the first time that window expands tremendously right if you can roll if you can at all in any conceivable way roll it back you roll it back mm-hmm. um then you get to tournament space and not only do you not get the backsies but i would say like it's rude it would be deeply rude to ask for one like do not do not ask your opponent if you can take something back in a tournament situation don't make them be the the jerk because yes. you screwed up 
Like, you know, take your lumps. It's competitive play. It's unforgiving that that's the space and understand that, uh, going in, but it's just like, it's a helpful example of like, these are different spaces. And sometimes it's really fun to be in that space. Um, I used to play more, especially cause I was playing, you know, I liked playing in agricola tournaments. Um, I know you enjoy this. Like Jesse, I know has played Catan. So it's not completely unfamiliar, uh, to our group, but I think, I think that's an example of like, we want different things from different games. And I do think there's some groups where they they form together to kind of do mini tournaments. Absolutely, and I, I think that's that's very vibrant, very relevant. Uh, it's not our group, and I think it's one of the one of the few places where competition isn't the king of our group. It isn't the ultimate example of our group dynamic, and that's, that's right. interesting. That's notable. Right, we're not we're a not- high school chess team. Right, we're like determining our rankings so that we can go and compete against other schools and do as best as we can for the school. Like that's not what we're doing. Mm-mm. that's not that's not the realm that we're in um one thing you mentioned to me before and maybe i just want to bring it back like i know you you've really enjoyed playing russian railroads obviously it lends itself to competition it seemed like for you terra mystica was an example of a game that kind of illuminates us because like you don't you you told me you don't really like terra mystica but you think it's an excellent game for competitive play or that's what interests you about it I do think there's a, a huge amount of space to learn. I, I feel like each, um, I, I have a hard time imagining asymmetrical tournament play where there isn't necessarily that one faction is stronger than another. I mean, I'd hope that they would all be ironed out in terms of equal equals. They're not. But knowing that, <laughs> yeah, knowing that, knowing that there, there maybe is a pressure point aspect or like a dominant meta or strategy you know, we talk about abstract games like chess where there is accepted openings and ways of countering that opening. And if you are presented with an unfamiliar opening, how you might be at a disadvantage. You might move yourself into a position. Now, when you take a game like Terra Mystica, where it really is about the board as it stands when you first, like it's about the actions on the left side and then the board that's in front of you in certain factions, not just by their powers, but by where they're placed and their kind of adjacency of where they can build towards immediately can give a huge advantage and so there is just a little bit, okay, well, if you know all the factions down, maybe tournament play starts to make sense if you really have true choice. But with Terra Mystica, you really, like, if you're in first position, if you're in the position to select your faction, and that isn't necessarily first position the way it's kind of, like, assigned, you have a huge advantage. No matter this what is the why they auction, right? Like, auctioning of the factions in Terra Mystica makes it more competitive. But auctioning isn't the base rules, right? Auctioning is more of like that. No, tournament but it is style. how you. Yeah. I think it is how you would play a tournament. If you go onto Board Game Arena right now and you play a Terra Mystica tournament, there's absolutely going to be faction auctioning. But then you have this thing of you have to know not only the faction well enough, but you have to know the auctioning game, which is a separate game. We can both agree. Well, you that have to auctioning... be able to effectively price yes. these different advantages in terms of victory points. Like you have to be able to set a number in your head and those differences of opinion is part of the competitiveness of the game. And yes, and like there's a whole different now game now of the auction game and price enforcing certain factions to make sure that everyone kind of gets zeroed out. Or what the difference of, yeah. What the difference of, of nominating something is three points more valuable rather than going just one point at a time, the psychology of jump shifting as they call it in, in bridge, Versus just letting something kind of incrementally move. 
it's just the whole other aspect of game that's there. And, and I feel like of our group, I always think of Tom as being the good auction player. <laughs> tends yeah. to like auction games, tends to, to do very well with them. And I think partially because they have a great sense of that part of the game. And I don't. I, I, I tremble at that. And so it does make me excited to play a game like Terra Mystica because it forces me to hopefully become a better player as Russian Railroads has and has as I've played Kingdom Builder more, which is another game which includes a lot of chaos and I dislike it deeply for it's like I can sometimes make a decision and then later <laughs> on down game be like, why did I ever make this decision? That was totally arbitrary, maybe the absolute correct decision, but because of randomness of cards coming out, like I'm now being like kicked in the head for round after round. You can tell I have some personal experiences with Kingdom Builder, but but like Kingdom you know, Builder, yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. I can't wait to play something better than Kingdom Builder. BGA, please listen to me. Um, well, yeah, so, so you might so try Winter that, Kingdom, that, which Jennifer reviewed and ad- addresses some of that stuff. Yeah, I'm excited. Okay, so final any any final thoughts on competitiveness? Do you think that you are going to play more competitive? Like, are, is this a direction you see yourself going? Playing more tournaments? taking games because like i think that's more like my mentality a lot of times is we look at our group and we have like our early adapters the people like jennifer and matt that just want to play everything want to be early adapter want to try stuff and the joys are in learning and experiencing new things and i like that too but i tend to like want that first layer of filtration through the Mm -hmm. jennifer and matt's (laughs) of our groups and i feel like that's so that's one that's like part one mentality then there's another mentality which is more of like the paul who wants to once they get into a game they want to explore all the different spaces in order to kind of get at mastery but like that exploration maybe even more important than the mastery itself but then like once you find a game you really love and you're like ready to like mentally commit to and you're thinking about it while you sleep yeah like that's to me i feel like that's when you're like ready for competitive play and i think like i get there on some games very Mm -hmm. few but some games and it sounds like you have too i i feel like i have but i think part of it is for me is that i am just learning the tournament idea like the tournament style of play and I, I think my Russian Railroad's preoccupation is partially just by a laziness at like, okay, I, I kind of barely have scratched the surface on this. I understand it well enough to do okay. But I think ultimately I want to do the Agricolas. I want to play these games with a more rich decision space, a little bit less knowledge prior. Uh, don't get me wrong. Russian Railroads has small variations and it, Russian Railroads really was made to be an Agricola reaction. It, it mm. feels like it. Okay. There's just a less less uh, tile variation that comes out. The conductors, there's like a little bit that happens there. And that's where the majority of the game happens in tournament play. You see the conductors that are there. You see what's possible throughout the game. You kind of start to future cast what, what your moves are going to do. And with Agricola, I think there's a bit of that, but there is some hidden information what gets turned over, right? What kind of reveals itself later in the game, potentially, what those p- specific tiles are. Anyways, all I'm saying is I want to grow this into maybe there's some other games in my portfolio or maybe there's just more seasoned games that i can kind of i can take on games that i think are already really regarded in the tournament space and especially as i'm i'm stolen from all y'all like i don't get that camaraderie i'm not going to get it very often hopefully every once in a while i can be that random person who comes into town and gets my fix but knowing that it's not the case i think tournament provides like a different area to which my 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 own interest in developing my gamesmanship can kind of continue. So something to it. That, that makes a lot of sense. 
All right. Well, thanks. I think uh, hopefully we added something to a topic that Jennifer started with her discussion of competitiveness. I think we were trying to look at, you know, specifically here, like tournament play, but also, um, you know, looking at this isn't just about like competition among your friends, but like, you know, taking it to that other level. And like, there's some real pleasures there. And so I, I, it's, um, hopefully we, we, we got at some of them. You want to do a, um, a game sommelier? Yes, please. Sometimes a player just got to know which game should stay, which game should go, which to play with mama, madame, abou. You got to tell me, monsieur, just what to do. Want to make an impression, but I can't get far with my 50th player of Agricola. A million games. Show me the way to the master, the game sommelier. Okay, Josh Bautier writes, Hey, all. I recently got to play Hansa Teutonica for the first time and was blown away with how good it is. After the session, I kind of had an epiphany about what kind of games I enjoy most. I always thought the heavier the better, but now I'm not sure. Games that give me the same sort of feeling are The Estates, Irish Gage, Tigris and Euphrates, and Food Chain Magnate. I know that my favorite part of these experiences are an evolving metagame with a simple set of rules. The problem is that these games really want to have repeated plays with the same group, competitiveness, and I game with a few different circles normally. Any idea for games that I can bring to my other groups that have a similar feel to Hansa Teutonica and others? Thank you for being a wonderful part of my work week. Cheers, Josh Bautier. And so we think they're asking for a lighter game that still has a rich decision space. Well, what I took from this, or at least the part I chose to engage with, is when I look at the games there, because that's still a pretty wide variety of games, but it it seemed like the common theme there was that your opponent's placement on the map kind of matters tremendously, that you're engaging with and capitalizing off of other players' decisions, You're, you're jockeying for board position. So this this seems to be a little bit of the I'm not looking for multiplayer solitaire. I want games where we're we're playing stuff on the because that's uh in Hansa Teutonica, I think what he's talking about is like when you make your places on the board in Hansa, you're often reacting to what happened before. Like somebody's placed something down on a line and you might block them, knowing that they're gonna have to displace you and you're gonna get certain rewards for that. So uh you're you're constantly like you're not playing um head down. Yeah. Where you're just playing your own game. Other people's moves matter tremendously on a turn by turn level. So that's the part that I did. And yes, then like maybe lighter or at least introductory that has that same feel. Did you have any games or did, did you go a different direction? No, no, I, I totally did. And I, I really agree hundred percent. And and to my own controversy, after not after not liking but having plenty of it, Kingdom Builder is a great game for this. Because it is a game where it has variability. There's a three rules that get brought out of what's going to be scored. And you play on that board and you are constantly reacting to the space. Now, that reaction is very limited to the cards that that get dealt. But it's a very easy rule set to grok. Right. And then to kind of understand the important points. Just even after one game, I feel like a player with the smallest exception is some of the rules. Some of the rules that come out are a little bit esoteric and maybe would take some counting but the fact that somebody can just see that know where the important parts are you start playing on the board and it gets really decisiony quickly and it's it's great to get efficiencies so well i'm eager for you to play winter kingdom because i have winter kingdom down on on my list here which i i I kind of like tom i did not expect to like 
And then also, I think like the the theming of that game, like the way it looks versus how it plays. It's like I got into Kingdom Builder and I had thought, oh, this is a fairly like game and then like came out of it being like, oh, no, like there's a lot of abstract strategy here. There's some big decisions where like like you said, you make a decision in turn two that comes back to haunt you in in, uh, in turn seven. Uh, so I, I think you should you should try Winter Kingdom, uh, Alfred. And that would have been one of my recommendations. Uh, especially because food chain food chain magnet was on the list, I felt like well, bu- start with bus mm-hmm. also because you know bus uh, splatter is super simple mechanisms, but like the 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 thing the little moves that people make on the board change what you can do tremendously. Uh, everything that other people do does has a huge effect on your game, and then we we say this one often: um, fresh fish. Mm-hmm. is uh, uh, kind of another simple game where all you're doing is placing tiles uh, as a city kind of gro- grows out. Um, but it's very much about about the board and, you know, people, they're not targeting you in their moves. Uh, they're doing what's best for them, but it's incredibly, it's surprisingly and interactive in terms of how the, the map evolves from player. There's um, a lot of awareness of how you're screwing someone else over. Let's be honest. You There's moves of opportunity that definitely benefit you but definitely punish someone else and so it's a part of the game yeah. but it's where the competition lies it's great it's a really yeah fun but game. in the same way like yeah food chain magnet you're compete like the board evolves and then you're competing for the things that are on that and i feel like both you know both bus and fresh fish kind of like create these opportunities of like can you seize it and often i feel like i'm you make moves in that game and you hope they work out <laughs> but you don't know that they're going to work. Like the decision space is like it's simple mechanisms, but the decision still space is still so large of like, I don't know if this is going to work out long-term maybe. I would add just one more. That's a little bit on the more complex side, but it has that kind of wonderful it's on the board. It's in front of you, which is great Western trail. You know, there's a, there's not the most interaction, but there, there is enough that's happening on the board that you are forced to think about the implication of what the other players did around you. There is a later a- area of the game to which you are kind of running amok and maybe those super terms take away from some of what they're asking. But I just from a different perspective of a different style game, but is... is No, I, I know what you mean. Because it, I think it's to a little bit of a smaller degree, but in Great Western Trail, you're you're placing your own buildings on the board. You can actively create obstacles for other players. You can channel people into kind of like paying you to move through your, your buildings and stuff. And and you do have this evolution of the game board. That's kind of unique every time or feels unique every time that um, I, I, a smaller degree, but that's certainly like, that's part of my favorite aspect uh, of that game it isn't just you know like cycling your cards yeah. to you know cycle through the game as quickly as possible the way it it, it sometimes felt when i was first learning it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right we have a youtube channel you should check out um we have a facebook group we've had a lot of good discussions on the facebook uh group we have a discord channel uh we can always use more game uh Somalia questions uh, send those to uh contact at uh, gamebrainpod.com and you have been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, and me, Trey Alsop. Special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach us at by email at contact at GameBrain.com or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening and go play some games with friends. 
or go make some friends with games.